Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping on Thursday, November 6th at 10.30 a.m. As always, and especially today, news happens fast and things might well have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined via video conference by Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hello, everybody. Mary Ellen McIntyre of CQ Roll Call. Hi, everyone. And Kimberly Leonard of Business Insider. Hello. Later in this episode, we'll have the winner of our KHN Halloween Haiku Contest. Yes, hard to believe, but Halloween was only a few days ago. But first, the news, at least such as we know it now. So we are not quite at President-elect Biden yet, but it seems like it's almost there. And barring something truly bizarre, like Democrats winning two Georgia Senate runoffs, it looks like we'll still have Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, albeit with an even slimmer Republican margin. So what does divided government mean for a Democrat back in the White House and for the health agenda? It means that a lot of things that former Vice President Biden promised will be a lot harder to achieve because things like fixing the Affordable Care Act, things like instituting a public option won't make it past the GOP-controlled Senate. And it'll also even be hard for Biden to have a lot of his nominees confirmed. It probably means that certain nominees are going to have to be more centrist, less political. And so it will harm the agenda after he's sworn into the White House. Yeah, I, I thought that the the comment by Mitch McConnell right off the bat, the race hasn't been decided yet, but he said, yeah, the Senate's not going to confirm any liberal cabinet members seem to be a little bit combative. Unless Mitch McConnell decides that he wouldn't mind seeing Bernie Sanders someplace else. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. So some of the more liberal possible cabinet members would likely come. Sure. Send him to the Department of Labor. I've had enough. <laughs> well, that was sort of what I was thinking. I mean, liberal cabinet members still don't have a lot of authority. Cabinet members do what the White House tells them to. I mean, Robert Reich, who's pretty much as liberal as they come, didn't dramatically changed labor policy when he was the labor secretary. It just seemed sort of like McConnell wanted to throw down the, you know, we're going to make this a one-term president kind of thing without actually repeating that phrase, we're going to make him a one-term president. Well, he hasn't been inaugurated yet, so nobody has said Waterloo. Yeah, I guess. But I imagine he'll still do that. I mean, uh, Mel, what does this do to the congressional agenda on things that were bipartisan, like drug prices and surprise I think, bills. I think it means that everyone's going to have to really temper their expectations. You know, drug prices and surprise billing, I think, will remain on the agenda. You know, I do think there's a small chance that we see surprise billing come up in the lame duck session. Um, but if it does not, I think that's something we'll continue to see discussed into next year. On drug pricing, I think it actually gets harder. You know, that obviously stalled this year with Republicans and Democrats in the Senate not agreeing. You're going to have Chuck Grassley leaving the Finance Committee Mike Crapo is most likely going to be the chairman there. He's a lot more conservative on this, voted against that bill in the committee markup, has put forward a separate drug pricing bill that's a lot more conservative that Democrats do not support. So we're, I think we're going to be looking at, you know, a lot smaller policy changes, not quite as spicy as we've been discussing for the last year as a possibility. And might point out that on the Health, Education, Labor and Pensions Committee, the next in line is Richard Burr, who's got a lot of uh, health experience going back to his days in the House. But if he doesn't want it, and obviously there's a lot of jockeying around uh, committee chairmanships uh, in the Senate, it could go to Rand Paul, who would be next in line, which would be 
let us say, dramatically different. Yeah, that from would be, Lamar Alexander. That would be very different, particularly as COVID continues. And if Anthony Fauci returns, I think they've sparred pretty publicly in every COVID hearing that the health committee has had in the last several months. Can I say one thing that I think that there might be some bipartisanship on money, they, they would have to, it would have to be an old fashioned split the difference, you know, which doesn't happen very often anymore. But I do think that there is a recognition that we have um, let the public health system in this country fall apart. It was repaired, not perfectly, but it was repaired somewhat after 9-11 and the anthrax attacks. And there was a lot more bioterror preparation, which also meant regular public health. They're, they're, they overlap. The things you need to protect against bioterror are also things you need to protect against natural epidemics and disasters. And, and I want to point out that, that Richard Burr was heavily involved yes, in that yes, entire effort. Yes, yes. He and Casey worked, well, later, he and Casey worked on these issues. And, you know, and then it fell apart after the Great Recession, 2008, spending was really cut back. I mean, there are the, the idea they're really understaffed. I mean, I think I will remind people of this every time we speak about it is America is a country with a very short memory. The the window late in this pandemic or post-pandemic to address things, lessons learned, is going to be really eensy-weensy. And public health might get through on a bipartisan basis. Some more preventive care kind of things might get through on a bipartisan basis. I mean, Republicans are going to want to spend less money than the, than the Democrats, but can you move ahead? I mean, I don't, I haven't taken the temperature up there, but it just does seem to me that is one thing that Republican senators could be hearing from their governors as well. States do need help with public health. The country needs help with public health. And maybe you'll see some kind of long-term commitment into things like developing a, a coronavirus vaccine that works on all coronaviruses or many coronaviruses, what they call a universal vaccine. Um, maybe we'll invest in that because that, that was sort of underway 20 years ago after the first SARS. And then people said, oh, that's over. Let's move on. And you know, we really have a let's move on kind of mentality in this country. Uh, but it's a form of national defense or global defense. And you might see some bipartisanship there. Maybe. Let's move on is a nice way of saying we have a very short attention span. And we definitely have a very short attention span. So we're all health reporters, not political reporters. Well, Julie, none of us could remember what day it was when we got to so, right. But I want to ask about some of the politics of what just happened. We saw all the pre-election polls said that COVID was the number one issue um, and there seemed to definitely, and particularly in the suburbs, be a backlash against Trump, which is quite likely what's driving Biden to a slim win. But he seemed to have zero coattails um, or very minimal ones, even in some of the states that he won, like Maine, where Susan Collins, who seemed to be behind the entire time, won. Um, is that something about Biden or was this just a reaction against Trump at the top of the ticket? I mean, what what was driving this? Joanne, you had you had a theory. You know, I think one thing is that Trump is very good at dichotomies. He's very good at making things black and white. He's not a subtle guy. There, there were two dichotomies here. One was either you shut down the economy or you open it all the way. Like he, there was no middle ground. And the same thing with the virus, you know, that he made people take a choice between it was either we fight the virus or we fight the economy or we shut down the economy entirely or we open the eco economy entirely. These were two really stark, they're variants of the same thing, but they're both really sharp. No choice. So people who had economic anxiety, because some people, some of the demographics who voted for me were somewhat surprising. And if you've lost your livelihood, if you're that economically anxious you're, that you're worried about your basic survival, they became economy voters, not virus voters, because Trump talked just like they were mutually exclusive. When we all know that this is not, a, you know, the chairman of the Fed yesterday said, you know, Powell said, you have to fight the virus if you're going to get the economy going. People are not going out and spending money and going to, you know, 
vacations and movies and, you know, the economy is not moving people. People are largely pretty at home. Even virus fatigued, we're not doing as much as we used to do. But I think that black-white message resonated with a lot of voters and they just chose the economy. And, you know, instead of there are public health measures, as we've talked about many, many times here that are you know, effective and proven and we've been using for decades that are not a complete and total shutdown. What do we know about how health played in the election? Clearly the threat to pre-existing condition protections um, that will be taken up by the Supreme Court next weekend, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, didn't work for Democrats the way it worked in 2018. So that seemed to just kind of fizzle as an issue, right? I think it got sort of absorbed into, it's hard to tell, right? The, the, you can only learn so much from exit polls. And this year was a really weird year with exit polls because some of them were exits and some of them were mail voters and blah, blah, blah. And they're not great anyway. It ranked lower on the exit polls. On the other hand, I think some of it got sort of subsumed into coronavirus so that your health concerns were sort of a subsection of your coronavirus concerns. I don't think we, until we see a lot more polling later and see how other issues poll going forward, I don't think that healthcare fell off the chart, but it sort of became a subcategory of your priorities. And economic anxiety too, right? You know, if you're worried about the economy, you're thinking about your healthcare costs can be part of that. There's still a lot we don't know here. The exit polls sort of seem to be all over the place. But I do think that Republicans were successful in making safety, policing a relevant issue in a lot of these areas. And I think that that's something that back in 2018, maybe they didn't have as much of another issue that they were talking about. And it was only healthcare. Um, and that that, you know, maybe matched that a little bit. Um, there was also so much going on with racial justice this year that I think two years ago, in the midterms, it was really just pre-existing conditions. And there were a lot more issues that people were talking about this year. Also, Republicans think that Trump is protecting pre-existing conditions. I mean, if you look at other polling prior to the, not the exit polls, but, you know, Trump keeps saying, you know, we're going to protect pre-existing conditions. And, you know, next Tuesday, his administration is going to court to try to take them away. I think Republican voters have bought into that, you know, like they're protected now and they think that they will be. And they think it's Trump, not Obamacare, that's protecting them. But I think it sort of neutralized it. Yeah, because he said so. All right. Well, let's talk about some of the things we do know. Um, it was a very good night for drugs, as Kate Nocera cheekily pointed out on Twitter. Oregon voters decriminalized small amounts of even hard drugs like cocaine, heroin and other potent opioids and directed the taxes on marijuana, which has been legal in the state since 2015, go to pay for drug treatment centers Four more states, uh, including not exactly hippie strongholds, Montana and South Dakota, voted to legalize recreational pot and even hallucinogenic mushrooms got some voter love with Oregon voters legalizing the active ingredient for medical use and Washington, D.C. criminalizing them. What is going on here? <laughs> didn't didn't we just spend years fighting an opioid epidemic and now we're making drugs kind of legal? I think there's a recognition that the approach that they've taken, which has been more focused on criminalization in the past than on public health, really hasn't worked very well. You know, even during the opioid epidemic, we had a lot of these problems. And so pointing people more toward having these products be legal, but also, you know, maybe educating about their dangers, maybe um, making treatment programs available for people who do become addicted is seen as a better approach. I mean, there really has been a change, I think, in the way that people think about this. But also, it turns out that when you turn these questions to voters, as opposed to going through the legislature, they do tend to receive widespread support. I wonder also if this is sort of part of the whole criminal justice reform thing. It's like, why do we have all these people who are arrested with, you know, minimal amounts of drugs on them in jail, which we do? I also think that people have gotten 
more open in discussing it and that many people know somebody who has a substance abuse problem and they see it as a health problem. Our social attitudes, they haven't changed 100%, but they've changed. People talk about family members differently than we did even a few years ago. And you don't see it as, oh, I want my you know brother-in-law to go to jail. Well, some people do want their brother-in-law to go to jail, but <laughs> maybe not for that reason. Well, on the abortion front, things were quieter in the states than usual, but the results in two states demonstrate yet again how divided the nation is. Louisiana became the fourth state to clarify that nothing in its state constitution protects a right to or requires funding of abortion. That doesn't do anything at the moment, but if the Supreme Court overrules Roe v. Wade, it would make it easier for Louisiana to ban abortion entirely. Meanwhile, Colorado voters defeated an amendment to ban abortion after 22 weeks of gestation, which was clearly aimed at a clinic in Boulder, where Dr. Warren Hearn is one of literally a handful of doctors in the country who performs abortions in the third trimester of pregnancy mostly for serious health problems for the pregnant person or fetus. And meanwhile, the Supreme Court could re-enter the abortion fray, uh, although not this Friday when it was originally scheduled to decide whether or not to take up a Mississippi ban on abortion after 15 weeks of gestation, which is impermissible under current court precedents. Granted, the courts now put this off again. I think it's the fifth time they've put off just a decision on whether or not to take the case. But uh, And you could sort of see why, given the uncertainty of everything else that's going on. They maybe don't want to throw abortion into the mix right now. But is abortion about to reemerge on the scene as a as a gigantic issue? Kim, you've been watching this. Yes, it is. And it has been for a while. And I think even this past year underscores how much uh, power states have to regulate abortion and how different abortion rights are in different states. So even though we have this threat of Roe v. Wade being overturned or weakened, there's already great discrepancy between states as to when women can access an abortion, uh, under what circumstances, whether they have a right to abortion, and, and how, far, the that, Trump how far they have to travel. I mean, in some states, it's, you know, the, there's only one or possibly two abortion clinics in the entire state. And these are many of them, some of the, the larger states where it's, you know, many, many hours to travel. Right. So it just varies so much. And that's something that, you know, whenever I talk to abortion rights groups, they try to underscore, yes, Roe v. Wade is under siege. However, this has been going on a long time and there already is really big discrepancy between uh, abortion rights in different states. Although I actually wrote a piece this week that uh, that talks about the possibility that the court could, if the court overturned Roe, it would turn the decisions back to the states. But if the court went a step beyond and decided that there actually is a right to life in the Constitution, that then states would not be allowed to legalize abortion. And it's not likely that the court's going to do that, but it's also not impossible that the court's going to do that. So I suspect we will see a lot more on the reproductive health front. Um, I do want to talk about COVID. Despite what the president said, COVID is still here after November 3rd, uh, and things are getting worse. So what are the chances that now we are sort of post-election uh, things might be able to depoliticize even a little bit. Mel, what 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 does the lame duck look like for possibilities of getting a COVID relief bill? It's still pretty unclear. You know, Democrats' majority in the House looks like it's shrinking somewhat significantly, possibly. Senate is sort of unclear. Mitch McConnell came out earlier this week and he said he would like to get a um, relief package passed but in the lame duck period. A few senators, you know, Senator Roy Blunt of Missouri said, okay, yep, he said that, but it's still going to be really tough. I think we'll get a little bit of a better sense next week when senators are back in town. I don't think you're going to see a lot of these Republican senators who have said we don't want to spend 
trillions more dollars on this, changing their minds. And I think that the election results this week are going to underscore their position um, and that House Democrats may be in a weaker negotiating position. But I think it's possible. It's going to be really tight, um, but it's definitely possible we'll see something. But I wouldn't say there's any great sense of how this is going to change in the next couple of weeks yet. And a lot also depends on President Trump and whether, um, you know, if on his way out, he's willing to sign a big stimulus package or whether he might even push for, you know, who knows? It's sort of a, a big question mark. And um, so will we see something in December or will we have to wait even until February to get something together? As we speak at this moment, uh, it does seem that we won't know next week who's going to control the Senate. And I'm wondering what impact that's going to have. Normally, you would know, you know, the the, the Republicans would either say, yeah, we're going to be in charge next year, too. Or they're going to say, "Uh oh, the Democrats are in charge. We have to finish whatever we want to get done now. But there's this possibility that Georgia will determine who has a majority. And I wonder how that impacts sort of this, this these last few weeks of legislating. Yeah, I mean, the other thing to consider is that there's a question of whether or not we're going to extend government funding past December 11th in a CR or an omnibus, both of which have sort of been discussed. So that's another huge legislative effort that lawmakers need to work on in the next couple of weeks. To do both of those, I feel like is a pretty heavy lift, but there you know, is going to, of course, be talk about can you pass some sort of spending bill without including some sort of stimulus legislation as a ride along there? And we, we should point out that if they do a CR, continuing resolution, that would go through some date to be determined, but early in the year, presumably, whereas if they do an omnibus, that would be for the entire fiscal year through next October 1st, right? Yes, <laughs> yes, that's correct. <laughs> just just making sure. I think people uh, pe- people are pretty knowledgeable, but that's, that starts to get a little bit arcane. Is there a chance, though, before we move on, for a, a, a depoliticization of 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 COVID or at least a thawing in the, the, uh, Kim, I see you shaking your head. You don't think, you don't see it? I I just don't. I just don't. I think that, you know, when you talk to people in different parts of the country, in different states, you really see that there is a huge difference in how people are thinking about this pandemic. And we talked about this at the beginning of the podcast, but there are a lot of people in this country who are really frustrated, who are really hurting economically, who aren't able to see loved ones, and frankly, who face a really you know, strange pattern of regulations in different cities and states as to what's open and what's not and what people are allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do. You know, a lot of officials who claim they're following science appear to actually not be following science. So I think that's led to a lot of confusion, frustration, and, you know, heartbreak for a lot of families. So I... I don't really see people coming together on this anytime soon, unfortunately. A little tiny bit, depending on how quickly and whether Trump leaves the stage, because we really don't know what he might try to take his stage with him. But, you know, McConnell has been pro-mask consistently. And, you know, masking doesn't require shutting down any businesses. Will you get a radical change in how it's talked about in the next couple of months? No. Can you get some messaging across that's better public health, possibly, depending on what Trump does? And also remember, it's getting so bad, it's just going to touch a lot more families. It's not something that's only happening in Arizona or only happening in upper Manhattan. It's in the entire country. The death toll's creeping up now. It was over 1,100 the other day. I, I didn't check yesterday's, but it's it's up. Caseload is 120,000 yesterday. Yeah, up from, I mean, it's just, it's start- 70 a week ago. Yeah. You know, there's COVID fatigue and there's all the other stuff we talk about, but it's going to 
punch a lot of people in the gut in the coming weeks. All right. Well, meanwhile, because there's not nearly enough news, the Supreme Court on Tuesday, as I mentioned earlier, here's oral arguments in the case challenging the Affordable Care Act. We have talked about this case a lot from its inception in 2018, and we'll talk about it again next week some more after the argument. So I won't belabor the details now. If you want more background, let me direct you to our October 8th episode where I interviewed Amy Howe of SCOTUS blog. My immediate question is, are people paying enough attention to this, given that there's a non-zero chance the entire law could be overturned? Or are they paying too much attention, given that most legal experts think it's a really weak case? And in any extent, we likely won't have a decision until the spring or summer of 2021. We seem to be sort of this, you know, talk about polarized. People talk about this case either, oh, nothing's going to happen, or, oh my God, the law is going to get overturned tomorrow. And neither of those is true. I I do think there's sort of a split answer to that question of, are we paying too much attention or too little attention? Um, you know, people who I speak to, you have a lot of Republican lawmakers who, um, after the Supreme Court hearings last month, talked a lot about this is an issue of severability, um, getting really into that and saying, even if the individual mandate is struck down, which doesn't really have a significant policy change at this point, the rest of the law is going to be fine. You have Republicans across the spectrum who have, you know, made comments similar to this. At the same time, if you talk to you know, people who are out working at like a hospital or in insurance coverage, the industry groups are nervous about this possibility. You know, they are considering what could happen. A lot of times I talk to people and they're like, thank you so much for covering this. We feel like people don't realize that this is an actual risk. So I do think there's sort of a split decision and possibly on Tuesday afternoon after the oral arguments, we'll have a bit of a better sense of where the justices are leaning on this and possibly we won't know and we will be wondering into the spring on what happens here. Because everything has been hanging for all of these months. Um, But it's hanging over a different scenario. If Biden had won the presidency and a workable Senate majority, he would have pushed ahead with a difficult agenda to get passed anyway, with this hanging over his head as a, as this hanging over his head as a possible though not likely event. Now his legislative agenda is going to shrink in terms of health care. But so it's going to have to be thinking about what happens, being prepared for if it does get thrown out. I mean, if all they do is throw out the mandate and nothing else, even in a Republican Senate, you might be able to get one. Or, it's going to be t- it'll be tight. It won't be you could get one. You know, you could get Murkowski or Collins and a few other people. Maybe you could get if you go with the reconciliation or whatever, they, whatever rules they end up. Could you? you know, make the mandate penalty 10 cents and make it constitutional again? Who knows? We don't know how. Well, of course, if they just throw out the mandate, then nothing happens. Right. But if they throw out the mandate with Title I, yeah. Related community rating. And if they throw out the mandate and the pre-existing condition protections, which is entirely possible because that was the original Trump administration Justice Department position, right. which is those things are so inextricably linked that if the mandate has to go, then those things have to go, too, which is, I think, one of the plausible. I mean, that's a more plausible possibility than throwing out the entire law, though, as we say, throwing out the entire law is possible. I think that people don't expect it. I mean, legal experts do not expect the entire law to be thrown out, but it's hard to find anyone now with a 6-3 court who says it's impossible. All right. Well, finally this week, I want to call attention to a couple of Trump administration actions that probably won't happen if Biden is actually elected. But if Trump pulls this out, could be very important. Uh, first, last week, the administration finalized its price transparency rule that requires health insurers to release their negotiated rates and let patients better estimate how much they'd have to pay for health care in advance. This is 
separate from their hospital transparency rule. The insurance industry, surprise, doesn't like this, uh, says it could drive prices higher. Another irony, the legal justification for the regulation comes from the Affordable Care Act. So even if it proceeds, it could end up in legal limbo if the rest of the health law is thrown out. My question for you guys is whether this is something that a Biden administration might want to pursue in some form or even leave in place. I actually do think that of any of the rules that the Trump administration put out um, that involve the ACA, and they put out a lot of different rules involving the ACA, that this is one that they might actually stick to, um, just because the idea of transparency is very popular. The idea of being able to know before you get a procedure done, before you pick up your drugs at the pharmacy, et cetera, what exactly you're going to pay is a popular idea. And if it's done well, it could help customers a lot. It could help patients a lot. But I think that we might see changes in terms of deadlines, maybe uh, sharpening some rules a little bit differently, changing things around. You'll certainly have, you know, the insurance lobby trying to change it. You'll certainly have the hospital lobby trying to change things. Um, And I I do think there'll be some pushing around of of deadlines. All right. Well, uh, the other big Trump administration news last week that came on Sunday, in fact, is uh, an approval for Georgia to basically get rid of its ACA insurance marketplace. Instead, individuals who purchase their own coverage currently through healthcare.gov would have to go through private agents and brokers who not only have a financial incentive to steer consumers to non-ACA compliant plans, but who might also steer them to plans that don't necessarily cover the care that those individuals need. What is Georgia's justification for doing this? And what's the administration's justification for approving it? It seems almost a strange idea, other than the fact that they would like the ACA to go away. Well, I mean, I think it's sort of a trial balloon. I mean, has anyone sued about this yet? I don't think so. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's just a matter of time. I was a little surprised. I mean, they didn't let some states, notably Idaho earlier in the administration, they didn't let some states really blow up the ACA. And this does. Um, I mean, it doesn't totally blow it up that, you know, you could still get a subsidized Obamacare plan. But if the insurance agent or the website or whatever doesn't really help you as a consumer, and if there's not a whole lot of public education about the difference between an ACA compliant plan that makes you eligible for a subsidy and some skinny plan that sounds real cheap but won't cover you if you need it, particularly during a pandemic, it's quite consumer dangerous. If you think you're buying something big and you think you're protected and you're not, whether it's COVID or cancer, you have a problem. By approving it two days before Election Day in Georgia, which has turned to be a much swingier state than anybody expected. I mean, clearly the administration was trying to, you know, make a political statement. But I'm wondering just who this what voters this appeals to other than the ones who just say we hate the ACA. Well, I think that you're saying we can give you cheaper alternatives. We can give you more choices. We can get the government out of your health care. I think it was a base pleaser, maybe a little bit of a middle class being afraid of your, you know, people who are blaming Obamacare for higher costs. You can get cheaper insurance. It just doesn't insure you. You know, Seema Verma announced that she would approve it two or three weeks before the election. So it didn't come as a bolt out of the blue the other day. But I was a little surprised they opened up this can of worms. The Biden administration, if there is, in fact, we need to still qualify it because, as Julie said at the beginning of this taping, you never know what's happened while we're, you know, disconnected from the rest of the world. But, you know, if if Biden gets in, there are things they can undo waivers or weaken waivers or renegotiate, give new directions. I mean, this is just going into effect. So it's complicated because some people will have just bought one, but, you know, between 
the enrollment period ends December 15th and Biden wouldn't come in until January 20th. So I don't know how you retroactively change people's insurance this year. This doesn't take effect. This is for next year. Okay. So then you then they could try to stop it. Biden could still try to in the the future CMS could still try to stop it. Yeah. Assuming that Biden gets in, we'll have we'll have lots to chew over. Yeah. I mean, I've been actually making calls on this week. How how much how much can they undo waivers that have already been signed? And apparently they can undo a fair amount. How far they go in undoing what states are already doing remains to be seen. But, you know, Julie, you just pointed out it's not this year anyway. So it's a theoretical. They can, it's easier to undo a theoretical for a consumer. All right. Well, that is the news for this week. Uh, and on a little brighter note, we have the winner of this year's KHN Halloween Haiku Contest. As I hope most of you know, uh, we publish a health policy haiku on our homepage every weekday as provided by our devoted readers, listeners, viewers. And sometimes we have themed contests. We got some really excellent entries this year, and you can see them on our website at khn.org. This year's winner is by JK, who wishes to remain otherwise anonymous. And it goes like this. Boo, it's the virus. Glad you are trick-or-treating. What luck, I am too. Though I will say I did not go trick-or-treating this year. Uh, But now it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash what the health. Mel, why don't you go first this week? Yeah, so my story is from the AP um, by, by Carla Johnson, Hannah Figurha, and Pia Deshpande. Sorry if I'm butchering someone's name. Counties with the worst virus surges overwhelmingly voted Trump. I think this gets at you know a lot of what we've talked about over the last 45 minutes or so. Um, but looking at just how politically divisive the virus has become, and I think it was 93% of the counties that currently have the highest rates of coronavirus in the country voted for Trump in the presidential election. Um, And I think that goes to show, you know, a lot of what we've been talking about in terms of how he has approached the virus and how he has encouraged his supporters to approach the virus, which is not to necessarily take the safety precautions and whatnot that we have all are taking on this podcast to um, try to limit the spread of the virus. Kim. Uh, My piece comes from the Wall Street Journal. It's called States Hire Consultants for COVID-19 Help with Mixed and Expensive Results. It's by Jean Eaglesham and Kirsten Grind, and it looks at how much money states are paying to get advice on getting the coronavirus under control, and it's not necessarily paying off. I highly recommend a look yeah, that's quite an eye-opening piece, Joanne. But it goes back to what we're talking about, that they don't have the, enough public health expertise of their own because they're underfunded. Uh, mine is a piece from Laura Santanum of um, PBS. Amid COVID-19 pandemic, voters choose Biden over Trump. And basically, again, with all the provisos about exit polling being imperfect, uh, two out of three people who had a relative or loved one die of the virus did, in fact, vote for Biden. On Twitter, a lot of people were screaming, well, that other third is heartless. Well, no, the other third doesn't believe that President Trump can stop it single-handedly or part of the country thinks he's doing just fine job and that the virus came from China. So I don't think everybody who didn't vote in that two-thirds is necessary, didn't love their grandmother. It's an interesting companion to Mel's story. Yeah, it's related. I I also have a COVID story this week. Uh, Mine is from the New York Times from our podcast pal, Sarah Cliff, along with Jessica Silver Greenberg. And it's called A New Item on Your Medical Bill, The COVID V. It's about how many healthcare providers, including dentists, ambulances, and assisted living facilities, are trying to pass along to their patients their added costs for personal protective equipment because insurance generally won't pay for it. Now, this is not unique to healthcare. Restaurants and other businesses are also tacking on COVID fees. But as usual, in healthcare, 
healthcare, the fees can get pretty steep. And in some cases, they're being deemed illegal by state officials. This is another one of those continuing problems posed by COVID. It's not really fair for individual healthcare providers to have to foot this bill, nor to push it off on patients. But it's another result of the fact that there's no national COVID policy. Okay, that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Ying, who makes us all sound good, even when we're in different places. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. Joanne? At Joanne Cannon. Kim? At Leonard KL. Mel? At Mel McIntyre. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.